convincing proof of his being Messiah. Jesus said that there'd be no other signs given. Remember the, the, the uh, scoffers, uh, even the religious leaders, they said, give us a sign, and he's given an abundance of signs. And Jesus said that they would be given no other sign than the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, as he was three days in the belly of the fish, or the Son of Man would be three days in the belly of the earth. And indeed, Jesus' enemies tried to hide this truth. We don't find that in John's Gospel, but in the other accounts, particularly Matthew's, you find them trying to hide this truth because this is the issue. If he is risen, then they were murderers. And not just murderers, but murderers of their Messiah. And this is largely what Peter preaches at Pentecost. The second reason that this is so important, is our redemption and salvation depend on Jesus' resurrection. We talk of the cross. Paul was apostle of the cross, and we preach of Christ and crucified. But it's not just that narrow little event. It's the, the cluster of events that surround that, and, of course, all the events that led up to that and everything since then. But indeed, if Jesus has given his life as a ransom for sinners on the cross in his death, and he fails to rise again, then it would appear that his giving of his life as that ransom for sinners was not accepted by God. That's a sober thought. Said another way, if Jesus died to pay the debt for our sin, that with his death, and the death kept him in prison, we're undone. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And so these events and, and the evidence that John presents, as well as the other gospel writers, this is important. This is, this is vital. This is central. A third reason that Matthew Henry notes is that after Jesus' resurrection, he never showed himself alive as a resurrected Christ in a public setting. He never presents himself publicly at, at the temple and in the public square as he had at other times. And this is what Peter, Peter preached to Cornelius. Remember Acts 10? Uh, Cornelius, the Roman uh, centurion, has a vision and he, of an angel, and he sends for Peter. And Peter comes into their house, the house of a Gentile, and amongst other things, he says to him, of, concerning Christ, he says, Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen by God even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. They seem odd to our thinking. We would have said, as Matthew Henry puts it, let his cursed death on the cross be private and his glorious resurrection be public. It's a quote. But God's thoughts are not as our thoughts. He ordered it that his death should be, again quoting Matthew Henry, that it should be public before the Son by the same token that the Son blushed and hid his face when Jesus died. Remember how it was dark at noon, eloquently put by Henry there. The Son blushed and hid his face when Jesus died. But the demonstrations of his resurrection should be reserved as a favor for particular friends. And by them then to be published to the world that those might be blessed who, not having seen, have yet believed. And so we have a first-hand account from the Apostle John of what happened on that first day of the week. John was one of those chosen by Jesus to publish the events 
of that glorious morning. John's record gives us proofs that Jesus rose on the third day just as he said he would. In this 20th chapter, I'm going to give you now as a, kind of an overview of the 20th chapter. In this 20th chapter, John provides two events that took place at the tomb. We're looking at those this morning. It was found empty, empty of a body, but it wasn't empty. It was empty except for the grave clothes that were left in good order. We're going to focus on that this morning. And the two angels that appeared to Mary Magdalene. This for later. And then John supplies two accounts of Jesus meeting with his disciples. One, on that same evening, Thomas was absent. And then a whole week later, the eighth day after the resurrection, he will appear to them again when Thomas is present. These are the events we're going to look at over the next few weeks. So then, what John records here is, it's mostly left out of the other accounts. It's, it's unique to John's gospel, not even all of it. Well, by and large, what John provides us is it's a, a remarkable in his testimony. We're going to use three main headings. The testimony of the tomb, the testimony of Mary, and as we'll see, kind of an odd person to pick. So we'll look at that. And then we're going to look at something else that's in the text. The struggle of immature faith. The struggle of immature faith. I think some of you you'll be able to identify with that or perhaps remember that from a time past. So we begin with the testimony of the tomb. John writes of the testimony of the moose stone and the testimony of the grave's clothes. That's largely what we've just read. We, we were going to counter in facts here, but these are the two main proofs that, of the resurrection that John supplies in what took place in the garden. Uh, there are other events that happen. John's writing later uh, he knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have covered those thoroughly, but John's writing later, remember we've, we've said this before, John's writing in a day where there are many scoffers, many deniers of the resurrection. There are other uh, heresies creeping in. And so John is he's being very specific. And when I say, you know, why are we going to spend all this time without grave clothes? Well, John does. And this is an important detail that underscores that Jesus was truly raised, even as we saw in the previous chapter, how John was careful to provide detail to demonstrate Jesus was truly dead when he was buried. So we see first the testimony of the moose stone. So the women were coming, we're told of Mary particularly. Let me just comment. There were other women. John doesn't discount that. He's not in conflict. As a matter of fact, when Mary comes back in verse 2 and she speaks to John and Peter, she says, this is in verse 2, and we do not know. So there's others with him, but John's focused on Mary. We'll come to later why. So Mary's gone early in the morning. They've gone up uh, before sunrise. They want to be there when the first light comes. Um, one commentator suggests, I think wisely, that after the sun set on the Sabbath, then the Sabbath was ended because they begin at the sunset on Friday. And that they may have gone into the market and secured and purchased the additional things for preparing the body or the long sleep of death for, for corruption. And you can see how they did not understand. So Mary's gone, and she's coming to the other women, and we're told by their gospel writers, they bring these things to, uh, as it were, to complete what Joseph and Nicodemus <clears throat> had to accomplish in haste. And so they're expecting, because whether they saw firsthand or had been told by others, there's a large stone. 
one commentator on what grounds, you know, other writings of that era, said that that stone was probably so large it would have taken 20 men to move it. This is a big stone, children. Children, have you ever been in the woods hiking and you see a rock that looks like, oh, that will roll? And you kind of pile around it, try to give it a shove, and you find out, oh, it's a little harder than I thought. I've done that. Maybe some of your dads have too. Well, this is a big stone, so they're expecting it to block the way. And, and they come around the path you know, where they can't see the tomb. They come in some way, and they can see the tomb. And what do they see? They find that the stone had been taken away. Now, John uses a different word. The other gospel writers, they say it was rolled. I grew up with Sunday school literature. I'm sure you did too. You know, what, what's the picture then? I mean, we see this nice, orderly rock tomb. And there's this big round stone, looks sort of like a millstone, you know, rolled up, and then, you know, and Sunday morning it's kind of rolled away. <coughs> That's a very distorted picture of the way things were. Um, it's not like somebody went and carved a millstone to put in front of the door. It's a rock that would, would have been in the garden that they've used levers and a group of men, and they, they laid it there. Well, John says that it was the word he uses was lifted up. Or picked up. It's the same word that's used elsewhere in uh, by John or by Luke for the lifting up of the anchor of a ship. You don't roll those; you lift them up. It's the same verb that John uses here. Now, think about it. We're told there was an earthquake. We're told that the angels came, and these angels had power. They didn't need twenty angels to move that stone, children. That angel with supernatural power just moved it. And it was such that when John comes, he sees it. He chooses this word. It wasn't just kind of rolled along the face. It was out of place. It may have been like kind of like we might think of dynamite moving it out of the way. This thing was lifted up. It was out of the way. Some men didn't come along to move it. Supernaturally, it was moved. And so that's what Mary sees. And this is what's recounted. And then what does John tell us? The next thing he tells us, we know other things took place, that angels appeared to them and so forth, but John's focused on the stone. So Mary and the women with her, they run to where Simon, Peter, and John are. And John's focused on this event. Now this is remarkable. Children, I want you to think back. You, you studied this in Sunday school. Some of you, you encountered the story of what took place when Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And you, we remember that the, the religious leaders, the Jews, as John referred to them, they knew that Jesus said, on the third day rise again. So they made provision. They went to Pilate. He says, you got a guard. Set it. So they went and they sealed the tomb somehow. There's rocks there. And I don't know if they put a ribbon over it, put a, a seal of authority on it, and they said armed soldiers there. But that's not what they encountered. That's not what was there when Mary gets there. The other events have already taken place. And what did they encounter? What is the testimony that John points to? An open tomb with a stone picked up and moved away from the entrance. So, that's evidence. John's describing with detail what had happened there, though he did not see it. But the next thing is that we find out it was not so, uh, it was a tomb that was not so empty. 
no body in there. Remember, we talked about that the tomb had never been used before. There were other bodies that were there. The only body that they laid there was the body that came out, and it was the living Christ. You know, had to not, you didn't have to guess. Was it someone else? No, there was only one. But the tomb was not empty, and that's what we're told. But back to verse 2. She ran, that's Mary ran, told Simon and Peter. I just noticed something here. John has done this other times, and it's worth commenting on, because he does it again in some length. And to the other disciple. And then John's going to use the other disciple throughout this account. But what does he say? Who is this other disciple? Whom Jesus loved. John's referred to himself that way and said to them, What do we see here? We see humility in John. And it is a work of God's grace that that humility is in John. Because remember, if you look at the other gospel accounts, there's a time when they want. Jesus to decree that one will be on his right side and one will be on his left side. And when we compare gospel accounts, that we know they even employed their mother. The, the mother of the sons of thunder went to Jesus to petition that he would grant that. And Jesus rebuked them. And it wasn't an attitude unique to Peter, I mean to James and John. The other disciples were disgruntled about that because they wanted the same sort of honors. John took that rebuke to heart. The Holy Spirit worked that rebuke in John. And so we've seen John's account. Is indeed John who has outlived the others. As John is writing this, John's not saying, well, look at me. I'm the one that's lived the longest of all the others. So John says, that other disciple. No, the, the one that Jesus loved. That's a lesson for us in that. To be humble. Not to celebrate ourselves. We celebrate John because God used John to give us this gospel. But more than that, we should celebrate the God who inspired John and the God who is risen. We should have this attitude of John. Let us be last. Let us be least. Let us be the servant of all. And so Mary tells Peter and this other disciple. <coughs> Peter therefore went out. Peter reacts. Peter sees read Mark, you find Peter's always just go, 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 do, do. And so he's out of there. He's out and he went out and the other disciples were with him and they're going to the tomb. But as they get going, what happens then? They both ran together. You ever done that, children? You're out playing in the yard with your brother and sister. One of you starts running, boom, the other's running right along with him. Here these grown men, they're doing the same thing. They're running because something radical has happened. And we can say something they didn't expect to happen. They have been told. But that will be more in our last point. So they ran together, and then the other disciple, that's John, he outran Peter and came to the tomb first. We understand John was the youngest. When Jesus called him, he may have just been in his upper teens, 17, 18. Now, Peter's an older man, a mature man. Yeah, Peter had a wife. He was married. Um, we're not told more about it other than that he had a mother-in-law. And so I'll tell you how it is, you know. What are you young guys here? And I start to take off and run. You're going to win that race, right? And that's what happened. John outran Peter, and he gets to the tomb. But now this what John records. And he, that's himself, stooping down, he looked in, and it's not like just stooping down. He's probably kind of bending half over. We kind of think this big door. But he's stooping down, and he looks in, and what does he see? The linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. And then Peter caught up, and I can imagine him, right? He's an older guy. That's what I'd be doing. That's what a lot of you guys would be doing, right? And he gets there, and he went on in. That's Peter, right? He just went on in. 
No standing out speaking. And Peter goes right on in. And what does he see? He sees the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief. That's kind of an interesting word here. It's not like a handkerchief. This is, I don't know, in some sense, think of the Middle Eastern people. They have their heads wrapped, you know, with a turban or something. It's something, um, some, one translation even renders it sweatband. Which is sort of why they would wear those turbans to suck up all that sweat that comes in. But anyway, this, it, the, the point is, it's what was around his head. Translated here, this handkerchief. That had been around his head, not lying with a linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. You see how detailed that is? And, and the nature of the, the other cloths, remember we were told that Jesus was wrapped up with the herbs and spices. They wrapped up his body with these strips of cloth. And they're laying there. They're just laying there except for what was on his head. It's folded and neatly laid. That tells us details of something astounding took place in that place, in that tomb. Now, what we see in this account is the unthinkable has happened. Jesus is risen. He's told them he's going to rise again. But you, you see in all this, it's not sinking in. Now, what we must understand, the, they all believe in the resurrection. The, the one that we're waiting for. The one that when Jesus comes with a shout and the dead in Christ will be raised first. And those who remain will be caught up together to meet him in the air. They believed in that. Remember when Jesus came and Lazarus is four days dead in the tomb. And Jesus tells them, they're like, Lord, of course we believe in the resurrection. But what they couldn't imagine is that their brother, after four days, was going to be raised from the dead. And likewise, these disciples, they can't imagine that Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus, well, he's dead now. Who's going to raise him? Well, we know from the text he's going to raise himself. The Father's going to raise him. The Holy Spirit's going to raise him. The Trinity is in concert, accomplishing this glorious purpose. But you see there's this, this dullness. And Matthew Henry points out, lest we reflect on them, let us reflect on ourselves. How many times, brothers and sisters, in dark and difficult days, do we demonstrate a slowness, yea, a dullness in spiritual matters? We forget God's promises, and that's what we see them doing. You see that with Mary. She says, but they've taken him away. Who does Mary think this could have, could have done this, taken away? Who does she think it might have been? Well, maybe the chief priest. Remember, because they're concerned that you know they're going to steal the body away, so we'll get it first, so they can't, and you know make a very, very big deception that he was raised from the dead when he's not. Or maybe she thinks uh, Nicodemus and Joseph said, you know, it's, this isn't such a good setting here. You know, this, the, the, the Jews might come and molest his body, so they moved him somewhere in the night so that nobody would know where he was. And Mary pours out her alarm and grief to those whom she knew would care. She came, she knew where Peter and John were, and she came to them. What a remarkable story. And so they've come to the tomb. The tomb was not empty, but the tomb itself is a testimony. But now I want to focus on the burial clause. John, and I'm, I'm using more literal language of what's here in the original text, they were fine linen cloths. Nicodemus and Joseph did not select some discarded rags. They selected fine linen. It was one of the most expensive fabrics of the day, this fine linen. That's what they chose. 
both for the, the wrapping of the body and for this handkerchief. Matthew Henry makes several important observations about these fine linen grave clothes. And I'm going to follow him here. It's hard to improve on Matthew Henry. At points I'll quote him. I'll let you know. But I'm going to follow him through the points that he gives because they're beautiful, as you're going to see. Jesus never appears. He never appeared in the grave clothes as ghosts are supposed to do. Right? Now, what you expect? We don't see ghosts walking around in suits on. Not that we've seen ghosts, but you know, as people imagine these things, they're in the grave clothes. What did Lazarus come out of the grave in? Grave clothes. And Jesus said, loosen him. He's, he's bound up in these things. So, after him, Jesus never appeared in his grave clothes that ghosts are supposed to do. No, he laid them aside. Close into the quote. For he, has, he was no ghost. He was no ghost. He arose fully human, yet he is now in a glorified body. One like we shall have someday. Matthew Henry says, quote, Jesus never appeared in his grave clothes as ghosts are supposed to do. Why? First, because Jesus arose to die no more. As the Apostle Paul said, quote, from Romans 6, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus conquered death as well as sin in the grave. Lazarus came out of the tomb, the tomb as we noted, wrapped up. Because he, he was going to use them again. You know, there's some appropriate analogy there. He's, he's still wrapped in them. Well, he's going to be wrapped in them yet again at some other time when he dies. The death that will endure until Jesus comes again. But Jesus rose immortal. Never to die again. He had no further use of grave clothes. Those fine linens uh, that were paid for with, with dearly with money, they served him well, but they served him ever so briefly because he's the victorious, triumphant king. Secondly, Matthew Henry gives, the second reason Matthew Henry gives why Jesus left the fine linen behind is because Jesus was going to be clothed with robes of glory. Therefore, he left the rags of earth, not to discount the fine linen, but what's, what if, what's fine linen, even on earth, compared to the clothes of glory? Now, here's how I'm thinking. Maybe some of you are thinking this, too. What was Jesus wearing? And where did he get it? He was wearing something. We don't know. That, that, that question's in my mind. He's got clothes. He's God. He, he spoke the heavens and the earth in existence. He's clothed. He's made provision for him. Thirdly, Matthew Henry notes that when we rise from the dead, uh, the death of sin to the life of righteousness, we must leave our grave clothes behind us, and we must put off all our corruptions. That's what he'll do. Here's a picture of that. Here's a here foreshadowing to what will happen to us. We will even put off the body of corruption and take up a body of incorruption. We'll be raised in newness of life. We see that here in the testimony of what happened in the garden. Fourthly, Matthew Henry points out, Christ left the grave, as it were, for our use. Since the grave is the bed of the saints. Thus he hath sheeted that bed. It's Matthew Henry's language. In other words, it's like children, what does your mom do? You know, she laundries a sheet and she puts them on the bed and she makes the bed up for you. That's what Matthew Henry is saying. That Jesus made up the bed for us. The grave has been prepared for us by Christ. It's made ready. And I love this too. Just This is an analogy and, and it's something which you find with the Puritans, but I still think it's legitimate. And the handkerchief was laid by itself 
for the use of mourning survivors to wipe away their tears. Now, whether that's why Jesus really did it, that's Jesus has provided us a comfort in his resurrection. When we lay it to death, lay in the grave those that we've loved that have died, he does provide for our sorrows. So, John records that the grave clothes were found in a very good order, which serves as an evidence that his body was not stolen away while men slept. Now, here's the reality. This happened in that day. Robbers would rob graves. They would come in the next night often, and they were after fine linen. It had value. It's, it's not spoiled by a rotting corpse if you get it quickly enough. It smelled pretty good when you think about their orbs and everything. And the fact that the clothes were left and the body was gone is clear that something remarkable has happened here. If someone stole the body of Jesus, they would have rather chose to carry him away clothed, not naked. You don't go, if you're going to rob a grave of the body, you don't take it away naked. And, and if they had done that and left the fine linen, for whatever reason, they would not have been left. Because the way that John, the words that John used, it gives the idea that the, the, what he was wrapped in was just laying there, except for what was on his head, which was finally folded and laid aside. Jesus just left the grave clothes, even as they could have just walked or come right through the tomb. He didn't need the stone away. We'll come to that in a minute. The stone, well, we'll just say the stone was removed so that they could see the grave was empty. Not because he needed the door open. So let's remind ourselves of some facts. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they were most concerned that the disciples would steal the body of Jesus away. And then they would tell everyone that he was raised again. And that brings us to my last point. If they went to the trouble of putting a stone in front of the door, sealing and setting a guard. Do you think some robbers are going to sneak in there to raid the tomb? No. And if they did, do you think they would have taken the time to carefully unwrap the body just so they could steal the body and leave the linens behind? That's preposterous. You see, John's building a case that what happened... What's, the evidence that's left behind underscores what happened. That Jesus rose, as it were, right through the grave clothes, laid and folded, laid aside the turban, and left the tomb. Because he's risen. He is risen indeed. He came out of the tomb. And the evidence of the tomb, the stone, what was left behind, all is in evidence here. Let's make an application before we go to our next point. Christian, you need not be afraid of the grave. Let me say that again. Christian, you need not be afraid of the grave nor of death since Christ is laid in the grave. I think one of the catechisms says he's, he's sanctified the grave. There's no reason for us to be frightful. It's not a pit of destruction. He has sanctified the grave for us. It's a place where our body rests, united to Christ, waiting the resurrection. Thank God for what Jesus has accomplished. Well, then I want to come to the testimony of Mary. Women, this will, I hope, make you feel glad you're not in the first century. Because the reality was in the first century, a woman's testimony was worthless. And in some sense, it was worth less than worthless. No woman would be called on to testify. Because that's just, that was the culture. And, and Jesus, I mean, John picks Mary. She's the one whom Jesus cast seven demons out. Why didn't he pick 
um, Jesus' aunt, the, the other Mary. It's Mary Magdalene. We know from the other gospel accounts that there were other women went. There was Mary, the mother of James. That's the sons of Zebedee. Uh, she's referred to as the mother of James. Um, Mary Magdalene, this Mary, Salome, Joanna, and we found, there were other women. There was a, a group of women that went together. They went specifically to the tomb to complete the process, to do a more thorough process of preparing the body for, for corruption, uh, that the, the herbs that there would be there to cover the, the uh, stench of death. Remember Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus said, we're living by time, that it's delayed in the day. The, the Sabbath, when the sun sets, it's on them. And they would have been scurried. They would have not had time to do all that they wanted, and others would have known that. And so these women brought more spices, and John picks Mary Magdalene. And he tells us how she went. She left for the garden while it was dark. But we see Mary had great affection. To whom much is given, much is required. But Jesus said, to whom much is forgiven, they love much. I think that's one reason John picks Mary. Mary loved much. She had tremendous affection. She had been forgiven much. She had been delivered from much. And Mary has an affection for Jesus. Now, I think you believers who walk sometime with the Lord, you know that. That when you... Uh, there's been great sin in your life and, and, and you come to understand the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus that that sin is forgiven and you move on the right response is as we sing more love to Jesus we have more love we pray for more love to Jesus Mary has a great love for Jesus I think it's another reason that John picks her there's a tremendous love in Mary because of all that she has seen in her Lord and all that he has done for her, I think of the leper who Jesus touched to heal when for years he had to go about crying, unclean, and dwell in barren places and had to touch the master. I think that leper had a great love for Jesus more than others whom he healed. And here's Mary with a great love, and she goes. And even though Jesus is dead in her mind, she understands it. Not knowing that he's raised from the dead, her love for him is not diminished. She still loves Christ, and she loves him more. Matthew, Matthew Henry notes, I'm quoting here, Love to Christ, if it be a cordial, it's like a really fine drink, will be constant. Her love to Christ was strong as death, the death of the cross, where her love stood by that cruel as the grave, where it made a visit to the cross, was there and was not deterred by its terrors and there she was early in the morning undertaking to go to the grave as she's going an earthquake occurs she doesn't get terrified and run for home she's resolute she loves Christ she's on a mission to demonstrate her love for him and she goes and what does Mary do she arrives to discover the tomb was empty and then she readily goes to tell others does Mary understand all that she has seen? No. We, we know from the other accounts that the angels have declared to her and the other women that he's risen. Uh, the one whom you seek is not here. He's risen. And yet it does not resonate. It does not seek in. She runs to tell the disciples, and they go as well. But her testimony, I say, 
And I think John wants us to understand is more faithful to more truth people because she's telling it out of confusion and misunderstanding. And yet she stands by this. The tomb was empty. And that's the point that John's bringing in this passage. That the tomb, the empty tomb, is a clear demonstration of the reality that Christ is raised. We'll have more in a moment, but I want to close with a third point. Just before I do that, we've, we've talked about this before. Um, John's elevating women as he elevates Mary. And that's one of the things that Christ coming in, the gospel is accomplished, that Christ in the gospel, he has elevated women wherever the gospel is calm. Gone. He's lifted up women in their status. And, and in a sense, we say, when we believe the gospel, restored them to that honor that you see in the garden with Eve at the right hand of Adam. Male and female, he made it. That's God's order. What's happening in our day of, of the gender confusion and blending of the sexes is a lie that devalues women above all. And it's only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that elevates women. And so we embrace that. And we marvel that John would pick Mary Magdalene. It's intentional. And her testimony is faithful and true. But as I've alluded to, we come to our third point. There's, there's a struggle going on here of immature faith. John writes all this because the Holy Spirit moved him to. Peter later would write, you know, that you know, the scriptures where holy men moved of old. These men were moved, even as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would come upon them and then call to mind the things that had happened that they would write to them. It's a factual account. It's an honest account, even about Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, as John refers to him himself. So he comes to verse 9 and 10. But let me t- just touch on verse 8 first. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Now, the word believed here is not the word for faith, or that's often translated believe. It's, it's a different word, and it specifically gets at the idea that he comprehended and understood. John, perhaps unlike Peter, is understanding something of what Jesus has said. There's something taking place. Jesus is not here. John is understanding and comprehending, though he doesn't get it all. If you think I'm making that up, look at what he goes on to say. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So what he believed, what he comprehended and understood, he's, he's still, the scripture in, in Jesus' own word, that's not clear in his mind. It's, this is not the robust faith that, that they will have. And, and what did they do? The, the disciples went away again and they went to their homes. John's a sinful man. He's affected by sin as we are. And he cannot connect all the facts before him to understand what's going on. Because he does not understand the scriptures. Because how, because how is it that we understand the scriptures? Let me be clear to every one of us. We don't understand the scriptures because we're a little brighter than the other guy. 
We understand the scriptures because the Holy Spirit gives us understanding in the scriptures. And indeed, even as it unfolds and they see Christ resurrected, they believe that he's raised, they're not going to understand the scriptures until the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes upon them and has it had bent upon Christ in great measure. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit unlocks, as it were, their mind. And the pieces fall together. And they connect to the dots. And they go on then to write uh, the New Testament with the, the richness and the depth and the complexity and unraveling the things from old that only old holy men will long to look into. The Holy Spirit gives them the understanding. But John says, we, we weren't there yet. This is an immature faith. This is this is the same immature faith that Jesus often has rebuked them for. Have I been with you so long and yet you don't understand? Oh, you men of little faith. The storm-tossed sea and they, they wake him up. They fear they're going to perish. And he said, have I been with you so long? Yeah, they've been rebuked. And it's still here. And we can relate. We can relate. But let me say to you, we have something they did not yet have then. It's not that they did not have the Holy Spirit, because they were not converted apart from the Holy Spirit. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling. That was necessary. It was necessary that Jesus be raised from the dead, that he had paid the penalty, made the sacrifice. Then the Holy Spirit can come into fullness. And Jesus, we're going to see a little bit later on, he's breathe, he'll breathe on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. But even in what they received at that point, it's at Pentecost that he comes with a demonstration of great power. So the men went to their lodgings. John, if he were uh, trying to make up a story that supported the resurrection... Yeah, he, he would record here, yeah, we went, we knew exactly, oh yeah, Jesus told us, and he would rise again, we saw it, he's, he's raised, trust me, he's raised. They're being honest about the wrestling within them, because this is going to underscore the certainty of what's taking place. The reality of that morning is going to be demonstrated as time unfolds. Here's the closest of Jesus' disciples who wanted more than anything to believe that Jesus was alive. And he's trying to wrap his head around it again, more than importantly, to get his heart to understand it. Mary, too, more than anything, she wanted their, her master to be alive. Matthew Henry says, <laughs> How unapt the disciples themselves were at first to believe the resurrection of Christ, which confirms the testimony that afterwards. Gay, they gave with so much assurance concerning it, for by the backwardness to believe it, it appears that they were not credulous concerning it, nor if those simple ones that believed every word. If they had had any design to advance their own interest by it, they would greedily have caught up the first spark of its evidence. They would have raised and supported one another's expectations in it. They would have prepared the minds of those that followed them to receive the notices of it. But we find, on the contrary, that their hopes were frustrated. It was to them a strange thing, one of the furthest things from their thoughts. Peter and John were so shy in believing, it was it believed it at first that nothing less than the most convincing proof of the thing was capable that could bring them to testify afterwards with so much assurance. Hereby it appears that they were not only honest men, would not be deceived by others, but they were cautious men 
who would not themselves be imposed upon. Into the quote. You see, this is one of the things. I mean, and later on, we're going to see Enoch and they go to the temple. They made a lame man, a lame man that day. And when they say, "Silver and gold have I none, children," you know this song, I hope. But such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, take up your bread and bed and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. It's right out of the scripture. And then later they're arrested, brought in. You know, what is this, this thing you've done? You know, And they forbid them from preaching in Jesus' name and for proclaiming him. The one whom they've crucified. They're telling people he's raised. And they're doing miracles because he's the raised, risen Christ. And these religious leaders marvel that these simple men, fishermen, they scorn such. They're so bold. Why? Some of these, indeed, was martyrs we know, other than John, they all went on to die a martyr's death because they preached the gospel, they preached the cross, they preached the resurrection. How could they be so bold if it just was, well, we, we kind of sort of thought it happened. Nobody's willing to die for something they kind of sort of, sort of thought happened. These men were <coughs> convinced they were, you could not they would not waver. You cannot dissuade them because it happened. And John's being honest, but we didn't start there. It was the work of God in us as the events unfold that we believed in. Let me conclude with this. You're my flock. And I love you. And I know there's some of you, you're struggling with immature faith. What you're hearing right now about Peter and John and Mary... You, you resonate with that. You have an immature faith you struggle with. Maybe you're not even sure that you have true saving faith. If would you believe, if you would believe, it must be the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart, working in you with the Word of God. So what do you do? And some of you, you, you've been here before, and what I'm about to say, you say, yeah. That's what made the difference. So what do you do if that's your... You read and you search the scriptures. And you do so with a heart fervently praying. God, open my eyes. Oh God, give me faith to see and believe in Christ and the resurrected Christ. Lord, give me a heart of understanding to believe all that I see here. Because I can't do it myself. And that's what Jesus was saying. Childlike faith. What's childlike faith? I can't do it. I'm just not able to do it. I'll take the moment to tell. Some of you know who Dr. James John Dobson is. You know, when we were a young family, we listened to him. We helped in our child rearing and moved on to even better sources. But he tells a story when his young son, Dane, if I remember his name right, there was Danae and Ryan, Ryan, a little guy. He's a little guy. And, uh, Dr. Dobson's home. He's tightened up the bolts and nuts on the swing set because you have to do those things to keep him safe. And, and he's there with Ryan, and all of a sudden he realizes, where's Ryan? Ryan's gone, goes in the house, can't find Ryan. He's, you know, this is bad. He's panicking. Where's Ryan? Where's Ryan? And so he starts walking in the neighborhood. Well, he thinks, oh, there's a construction site down the block. Good place to go. So he's making his way to look at the construction site, and he hears this little child voice going, Somebody help the boy. Somebody help the boy. Well, he comes along, and there's one of these construction flatbed trucks that Ryan has somehow either got on trying to get off or still trying to get on. He's just hanging off the back of this truck with his feet dangling. He can't do anything. He's helpless. And it's a cry of faith. Somebody help the boy. That's how we come to Jesus. I can't do it. Somebody help me. Oh, Lord. 
Let me address another group of you. Some of you see and believe. Give God the glory. It's only by the faith that the Holy Spirit has given you. You have understanding because it's been given to you from above. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many powerful. But in some sense, believers are the offscourings of the world. Well, just own that. And yet God has had mercy to save us, that he should have all the praise. And indeed, let him let us give God the glory for great things he has done. Christ is risen indeed. The message for the nations. Amen? Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we, we bow and pray with thanksgiving in our heart. Oh, God, that you had mercy on us sinners. And it's only because you mercifully <coughs> stooped to save us that you graciously sent your Holy Spirit into the corrupt vestiges and foulness of our sinful hearts to bring newness of life, uh, to uh, regenerate us, to make us alive unto you, O God, in salvation, to give us faith to believe in a, a renewed will to call upon the name of the Lord. Salvation is of the God, our God and of the Lamb. To you be glory, O God, in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 265. Come ye faithful Raise the strain, 265.